Well, good morning once again, Northridge. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're here. And for those of you in the room, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for making this a priority and spending some of your Sunday morning with us. We really value that, and we think and pray that God is going to do a new and fresh work in your life this morning. So the name on my birth certificate is Nicholas Donald Ertz. That is the name that my parents gave me when I was born. You see, Ertz is obviously a family name. Donald was my grandfather on my dad's side who passed away before I was born. And Nicholas, well, I guess my parents just liked the name Nicholas. You see, most people don't call me Nicholas, though. Most people, as you know, call me Nick. Most of you call me Nick. My wife Leah calls me love or babe, the terms of endearment. Our daughter Clara calls me dad or daddy. Most friends of my life that I've uh, known since I've grown up call me Ertz or Ertzy or some form of that. And I have one dear friend who calls me Ertzy Fertzy. <laughs> but that, I swear, is only endearing because of our relationship. So, like, don't get any ideas this morning, right? You see, I'm called by my name. We talked about names this morning. But I'm known as an individual for the many roles that I play in my life. Does anybody, I'm going to age myself here, does anybody remember the name or the game Guess Who? Do you remember that? Okay, there's a picture of it on the screens. If you're not familiar with the game Guess Who, the point of the game Guess Who was to guess the who, the name of the person on your opponent's card, before they guessed the name of the person on your card. And you, the goal of that was to do that before they obviously guessed your name. And so you would do that by asking alternating questions about the person's appearance. And so, for example, if your opponent had a picture of me on their card, and you asked them, does this person have blonde hair, you would say no. And then you would flip down all of the cards of the people who had blonde hair. And the point of the game, like I said, was to try to eliminate all of the incorrect options, all the incorrect who's, so you could guess the correct who. And the same is true, I think, about all the roles that we play in our life. If someone started to describe you based on the roles that you play, you could narrow down the person to the who based on the number or the types of roles that they play in their life, if you know enough about them. So for me, for example, if you're playing Guess Who with Nick, based on the roles that I play in my life, you would eventually know who I am based on these roles. And so these are the roles and positions that I hold in my life. I am a husband. I am a Christian or I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a pastor. I'm a divorcee. I am a sinner. I'm a preacher. I am a son, I am a brother, I am a bit of a gardener, I am a Minnesota Vikings fan. <laughs> and you can imagine I could go on and on. You would eventually know who I was talking about because you would mentally start to flip down the other people in your life based on the things that they are not. And you'd eventually know, oh, that person is Nick. They're talking about Nick based on the roles that I play. There's a person in the Bible whose name, whose name is listed or referred to 1,139 times. This person is most likely the most complex and many-sided character in the scriptures simply by naming the roles that this person filled suggests why they are so well known. So, let's play a little game of guess who this morning. I'm going to start naming the roles that this person played in the Bible. And once you are relatively sure who I'm talking about, this is a little participation game, I'd love for you to raise your hand. And by the time I get to all the roles that this person's played, let's see if we can name who this person is. You ready? All right, let's get started. This person was a friend. 
a lover, a father, a prophet, a murderer, a sinner, a shepherd, a fugitive, a politician, a poet, a musician, a warrior, a king, an adulterer, known as a type of Christ, and known as a man after God's own heart. Is somebody with their hand raised brave enough to guess who? You got it. This is the great King David, whose name is mentioned 1139 times in the Bible, in addition to the parts of the Bible that he wrote. All of those things about David are true. He obviously lived what is well known as an extraordinary life. See, many of you know the story of David's very humble beginning. He was so unlikely the king that would succeed Saul that when Samuel came to Jesse's house and asked for his sons, he had to go find David in the field because the first seven, the seven oldest sons, were not anointed as the king to succeed Saul. But today, as we're wrapping up our ordinary to extraordinary sermon series, I'd like to tell the story of the David who established a culture of extraordinary worship in the nation of Israel, specifically how David modeled his extraordinary worship in the visible and physical ways in his life. So to tell the story of David the worshiper, I think it's important that we have a little bit of context. See, the ancient Israelites went on three pilgrimages every year to Jerusalem. They went there for three major feasts, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. When they traveled to Jerusalem, no matter where they came from, they would ascend a hill to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's at and is at a type of a hill, the top of a hill. And so no matter where they came from in the nation of Israel, they would ascend to Jerusalem. And so when they would go to Jerusalem, they would sing or pray some songs called the Songs of Ascent. You see, the Songs of Ascent are recorded in the Psalms. So Psalms 120 through 134 are known as the Songs of Ascent. And these songs that the Israelites would sing and pray while they approached Jerusalem for those three feasts throughout the year reflected the sense of anticipation that they had to be near the temple or to be in God's presence in community. You see, these songs are songs of ascent, are praises and prayers and appeals for God's blessing as they came to the temple three times a year. But I want to focus on just two verses from the songs of ascent this morning. This is really the key text that I think is going to unlock why David was such an extraordinary worshiper. Excuse me. Psalm 121 is where I'm going to start. So if you want to open up your Bible app or you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm 121, starting in verse 1. It reads, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121. It says in the scripture, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? So what is the significance of looking up to the mountains? And to find that significance, we have to go back a little bit further in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 12. So Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Old Testament. So those first five books are the Old Testament or the Mosaic Law. And so in Deuteronomy 12, Moses is giving the law or the Israelites' instructions on how to worship God when they entered the Promised Land. And so we're going to be in Deuteronomy 12 to understand what God's instructions were to Israel on how to actually worship him. So Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 1, it reads, These are the decrees and regulations you must be careful to obey when you live in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving to you. 
you must obey them as long as you live. It's pretty clear. When you drive out the nations that live there, you must destroy all the places where they worship their gods. High on the mountains, up on the hills, and under every green tree. Break down the altars and smash their sacred pillars. Burn their Asherah poles. I'm going to pause here just for a second to give some context to what an Asherah pole is. I'm going to refer to that a couple different times today. So Asherah was a Canaanite goddess of fertility or of life. And so the pagan religions that were in the ancient Near East, along with the Israelites in the time of the Old Testament scriptures, would worship the goddess Asherah around a tree trunk or a wooden pole of some kind. And so Asherah and Asherah poles were ways that the pagan nations would worship a god or a goddess in the nation. And so what, they, or what Moses is saying here is, do not worship God in this way. Continuing, and cut down their carved idols. Completely erase the names of their gods. Do not worship the Lord your God the way these pagan peoples worship their gods. Rather, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among all the tribes. This place, or the place where his name will be honored. You see, this in Deuteronomy 12, I think is a really clear instruction from God through Moses to Israel on how to worship him. But you might or you might not be surprised that not every king of Israel would follow these instructions. You see, the Israelites in the ancient Near East were a nation amongst other pagan nations. And so there was a constant power struggle for land and for power in the ancient Near East at the time of the Old Testament when it was written. There were marriages across all the nations to establish pacts, to establish military alliances. There was a constant power struggle and an aiming and a grasping for power amongst the nation, including the nation of Israel. And so you're a little bit uh, thinking about, this is like a little bit of an ancient Game of Thrones. I guess the pastor is the only person who watched Game of Thrones. Okay. As king, David followed the command from Deuteronomy 12 to leave the mountaintops clear. As it says in the Songs of Ascent, it says, I look up to the mountaintops. Where does my help come from? So what it's referring to from Psalm 121, going back to Deuteronomy 12, is the mountaintops are for gods of Israel's worship and his worship alone. You see, David, King David, did as the Lord commanded. Everything that David built in his kingdom and for the nation of Israel was built in the second highest places in the kingdom. In contrast, his son, who would succeed him, King Solomon, especially in his older age, allowed worship of other gods in the nation of Israel. You see, King Solomon, especially again later in his life, would gain a tremendous amount of power from putting other gods in God of Israel's rightful place at the mountaintops. In 1 Kings 11, it actually says that King Solomon, and I quote from the scriptures, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, who was his first wife. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. You see, any time King Solomon wanted to be sure that the neighboring nation or a neighboring nation wouldn't wage war on Israel, he would bring home one of the daughters of that pagan nation uh, king as one of his brides. First Kings 11 goes on to say that Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and that as King Solomon grew older, his wife started to turn, or his wife started to turn his heart after or towards the other pagan gods. King Solomon built altars on the mountaintops for what the Bible calls detestable gods of other nations. King Solomon allowed for altars to other gods, incense burning to other gods, Asherah poles built and worshipped to other gods. We don't talk about this kind of stuff in Northridge Kids. This is a little bit of the, this is the deep part of the Bible that we don't talk a lot about. But King Solomon, if you know King Solomon's story well, he was known as a very wise king. King Solomon had a tremendous amount of influence and power, but King Solomon, again, especially later in his life, didn't get this power or this influence from worshiping God the way that he was commanded to and to keep everything else that he built 
below God's rightful place. We know a little bit of David's story. We know that his life wasn't without mess and without sin. But David kept God in God's rightful place. Everything that David built was second to God. To worship God and to keep everything clear from the mountaintops and leave it to honor him. That kind of worship is what we are commanded in the Bible in Deuteronomy 12. That kind of worship is when we put everything in our life second to God and we leave all the highest places of priority for God in his rightful place. In his book, Lifestyle Worship, author Orlando Figueiredo writes of King David. King David was a man who honored God in everything that he did, who chose to live and to do things God's, do things God's way. He was a man who had the utmost trust in God and who never trusted in his own strength, but relied totally on God for guidance, deliverance, protection, and provision. He was a man who honored God and was not afraid to openly express his love for God and seek his presence. There's a beautiful example of the way that David viewed and the way that David worshiped God. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. A little bit of context to 1 Chronicles 29. So um, King David was um, tasked with preparing the temple to be built, but to not actually build the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon. And yet King David is there sort of dedicating the temple before King Solomon would succeed him. So David, in this moment, when he is speaking these words to the nation of Israel, he's like, this is the last thing that's recorded of David's life in the Bible before it says David died. And so 1 Chronicles 29, David is sort of dedicating the temple before King Solomon would be the one who would actually build the temple. And these words are, I think, really powerful and incredible. And this is the way that David worshiped God even when, at this moment in his, in his reign, he had nothing to gain from it. And so it says in 1 Chronicles 29, David to the nation of Israel before the temple was dedicated. It says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. This is how King David viewed God. And this is why King David was an extraordinary worshiper. David was fully dependent on God. He kept God in his rightful place. He knew that everything would come from God and came from God, who, is, as it says in the scriptures, was exalted in the highest, worthy of our praise and ruler of all things. And so I'm talking a lot about worship, but I think it's important that we actually um, describe and give worship a definition this morning so we can be on the same page together. So for the purposes of this morning, would you bear with me and let's define worship as an act of reverence, honor, and devotion towards God. And so when we sing, as we just did, you are invited to stand and worship. And that, in singing and praising God, is, is an act of worship. But worship is more than just singing to God. It's anything that put, puts God in God's rightful place. You see, worship can be prayer. Worship can be praying just in the privacy of your bedroom, it can be praying at the dinner table. It can be praying in this kind of setting. It can be sacrifice. It can be sacrificing your tithes and offerings. It can be sacrificing your time. It can be sacrificing your talents or your gifts for the local church. It can be partaking in communion or the Eucharist when we break bread and remember Christ's sacrifice for us. It can be fasting. So anytime we withhold something to draw closer to God, it's an act of worship. It can be teaching or reading from the Bible. 
It can be leading others in worship or pointing them towards God as Susanna and uh, the worship team just did this morning. And it can be serving others from a Christian perspective. All of these things are acts of worship. Pastor Louis Giglio, who is the lead pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, wrote that worship is not an event, it's a lifestyle. And like anything, we can worship God second. When our mountaintops or the places in our li- of priority in our life have other priorities or gods on the top of them, this is what our life tends to look like. So whatever God and his place hold in our life As you can imagine, our life and our physical spaces will reflect God's place in our life. You see, God-honoring worship is the outward expression of our heart posture or where we put God in our heart. Though there is, of course, like I just listed, there are things that you can do privately to worship God, like prayer. I think the world should see where God's place is in your life what your priorities are, and where, as the scripture says, you think your help comes from. When people approach you, when they physically approach your person, or when they come into your home, or your place of work, or even your car, like the Israelites would do in the Songs of Ascent, when they approach Jerusalem, when people approach your life, I wonder what they would see on the mountaintop of your life. I wonder this morning, are you a King David? or a King Solomon, and how your life reflects God's place. Does your life value power? Does it value wealth? Does it value status? Does, the home, does your home and all the places that you physically hold, do they showcase God above all? Not like in an ostentatious way, but do people, when they come into your home and when they approach you as a person, do they know that God is important to you? If someone who knew you relatively well, like not your family member, your spouse, or your best friend, if someone who knew you relatively well was asked about you, I wonder what the other person would say your priorities are. What kind of person are you? And where is God's place in your life? You see, this morning, as we know from King David, worship has a physical element. How you arrange your schedule, your free time, how and where you spend your money, what you wear, what you drive, how you physically move and act, what your posture is towards other people, how you speak to and how you speak about other people. You see, all of these things are the physical manifestation and the outward reflection of our heart posture and how we put and where we place God in our lives. So let's think about that this morning in the two different mountains that we refer to, King David's and King Solomon's. The first mountain would look a lot like King Solomon's mountain. You see, God was on King Solomon's mountain. I'm not suggesting this morning that King Solomon didn't put God somewhere on his mountain. He worshiped God and he put God somewhere, especially later in life, on his mountain. But God was somewhere in the middle of King Solomon's mountain. And I think that a lot of us live our lives this way. I think that we keep God somewhere on our mountain, but it's somewhere in the middle. You see, some lives and some mountains might have an Asherah pole towards a god of career. There might be incense burning towards wealth and accomplishment. There might be an altar to sports and recreation and free time and vacations. You see, where we go for help and where we go for advancement We believe that our help comes from those things. When we put them on the top of the mountain, everything flows down from there. So we believe those things are where we are going to accomplish the things that we need in life. And we see God's place somewhere on the way up. You see, the other mountain, I think, looks like King David's mountain. The mountaintop is completely cleared off for worshiping God like Moses commanded in the Old Testament law. But below that, on King David kinds of mountain, there is space for all the other joys in life. Like family, like career, like sports, like travel, like wealth. You see, King David, as king of Israel, was an incredibly powerful and wealthy king. 
David had an incredibly powerful army. His life, of course, as we know, was not without a lot of trial and a lot of setbacks. But David's military successes and political successes would establish a relative place and time of peace in the nation of Israel. And David was so powerful and influential as king that much of King Solomon's life was sort of living in the wake of David's worship and David's political power. And so King Solomon got to live a life because of his dad's legacy. You see, a life of worship and putting God in his rightful place doesn't mean that you're going to have a boring life. It doesn't mean that your life is going to lack and to have less of the things that you really value the most. You see, God's going to provide a wealth of riches beyond what you could ever achieve. As some of you know, I have a second career in ministry. I spent the first 10 or so years of my career in finance. I had my master's degree. I was climbing the ladder in many ways. And God did a really amazing and incredible thing that I was upset about him at the time with. He called me to the ministry. And in that moment, when I saw that first pastoral salary, that first job offer that I had, there was this part of me that was torn between achieving and the way the world had led me to believe that achievement and success looks like. And I'm not suggesting this morning that you should, because of God's rightful place in your life as top of the mountain, should drop everything and become a pastor. I'm not suggesting that. But I will tell you this morning that if I look at my life the way it was prior to ministry and the way that it sits today, I would assure you that wealth and joy and happiness is far greater than it was before I sought after success in my life. See, God's going to provide you with a great sense of wealth and joy and happiness. But you have to be willing to put those things second to God's place in your life and to build your life like King David did in the second highest place. As we heard a few minutes ago, there are physical actions to reflect our worship of God. Like we shared a few minutes ago, one of the most popular actions or acts of worship is to sing and to praise God. You see, when we're in a time of worshiping God and praising God through music, it's why we stand up. Now, sometimes the worship leader is going to ask you to sit and receive, but most often you're going to be encouraged and asked to stand up. And why we stand when we're in a time of musical worship is the same reason, think about it like this, it's the same reason why we would stand up for a bride in a processional of a wedding. It's an act of honor. And this is a little bit hard to understand because we live in a republic and we have a president, but it's the same reason why people who live in a kingdom would stand when the king or the queen enters the room. Because that's really what we're doing when we're worshiping God through music. We're standing and honoring the presence of King Jesus here in this place. The story of King David's life is primarily told in four books of the Bible, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, and 1st Chronicles. And as we think about the story of King David's life from the key text today, remember from Psalm 121, there's something important that happens in King David's life that reflects this kind of worship towards God. You see, in 2nd Samuel 6, What's happening in, in context is David and the nation of Israel are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So before the temple was built in Israel, the presence of God was located in and around a something called the Ark of the Covenant. That was God's presence with his people. And so in 2 Samuel 6, David and the nation are carrying the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You see, the ark would stay here in Jerusalem, and eventually, like we talked about in King Solomon's dedication, the temple would get built and house God's presence in Jerusalem. But in 2 Samuel 6, the setting is David is carrying the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. And I want to read two verses from 2 Samuel 6. The first one is 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. 
It says, David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So they were a bit of a traveling band with God's presence. And a few verses later in 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 14. And it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. You see, in that moment, David, as king, is responding to God's blessings and God's place in his life. And you can imagine a king wearing priestly garments wouldn't normally be someone who is, as it's saying in the scriptures, dancing with all their might. It says in other uh, translations of the Bible that danced, David danced undefiled before the Lord. And I think what the author is getting at here is David was kind of making a fool of himself. Like David was dancing and they were blowing horns and playing music. They were so excited to be carrying God's presence and being together in that place of musical worship that they were blowing horns and playing every instrument that existed and dancing together in God's presence. When I was um, at our last church in 2017, I had the honor of traveling to the Philippines to go on a missions trip. And so in February 2017, uh, myself and a group of 10 other people traveled for about 10 days to the Philippines. You see, our church was partnered with an organization called the Trash Mountain Project. And the Trash Mountain Project existed, and it still exists, to alleviate poverty in what are known as trash dump communities. So you might be aware of these, but if you're not, there are a lot of places, especially in the developing world, that villages are centered sort of in and around a landfill or a trash dump. And a lot of the best ways for a man, especially with sometimes a woman and children, to provide for their family was to actually go into the landfill, into the trash dump, and collect the items that are in there. And some of the time, those were things that they would actually utilize and bring back home to use in their family or in their home. But more often than that, there was this dangerous sort of black market activity that was happening where people would go to get things for selling and for trading. And so life is sustained in and around these trash dumps. As you can imagine, that is a very, very dangerous and difficult life. And so the trash dump uh, communities uh, around the world were sought after by the Trash Mountain Project. I think they have about 16 different partnerships now. And so what the Trash Mountain Project would do would be to partner with churches that exist in and around the trash dump communities. And so in 2017, we traveled to the Philippines in a region called Antipolo, which is sort of like, if you look at the Philippines in Manila, it's sort of up the mountain to the east. And we spent about a week there with these people, helping them out in numerous ways. And so we spent time building bookcases for the children's wing of their church. And we spent time adding a second floor to a church in an urban setting. And we spent time doing medical clinics. And we spent time just praying with people and being with them. And honestly, just playing with the kids. A lot of my memories from that trip were not the things that we did or the things that we accomplished, but it was the way that we spent time with people. And so on the final day of our trip to the Philippines in 2017, we had the honor and pleasure of worshiping with them on Sunday morning. And so on the final Sunday of our trip to the Philippines, we spent Sunday morning at Vista Wesleyan Church in the Philippines. And what you would do to get to this village is you would drive up the side of this mountain or this hill up this dirt road. And you would take the van about as far as you could go up the side of this hill and you'd park the van. And we did that throughout the week many different times. But this morning, that morning was a little bit different. And so we drove the van and as soon as we got close to this church, we could hear the music 
and the shouts and the playing of the kids from outside of the van. And so when we got there, we got out of the van and started to walk the rest of the way up the hill. It's probably about 100 yards. And if you were to walk to the right, you would go up and you could see a little vista into the landfill behind the village. But if you walked to the left, you would approach the front door of the church. And that morning was different than all the other mornings of that missions trip. You see, that morning, we heard the shouts of joy and the music playing from the church. That morning, when we got out of the van and started to walk to the church, immediately there was this profound and like tangible sense of God's presence. It was one of those things, I don't know if you get those too, but I get goosebumps when I feel like the Holy Spirit is with and around and working in me. And immediately, we had that sense that morning. And so we walked up the hill and came into the building, and we've got, gotten the chance throughout that week to get to know the kids a little bit. And so they ran up and started to play the games and do the things that we did with them. And I was just so deeply overcome by God and his presence in the way that already, before there was any sort of formal service that it started, of God's presence in the way that the people of Vista Wesleyan Church were worshiping and praising God. And so I have two videos to share with you this morning, and I want to give you a little bit of a, a caveat about these videos. Number one, I am by no means a professional videographer. Number two, I used my little, um, I have the little iPhone. This is the little one. I don't know. It doesn't have a great camera. And number three, I had a lot of trouble actually taking these videos that morning because for a lot of moments throughout that Sunday morning, my body was just so overcome with emotion. And the tears were flowing down my cheeks so thick that I had trouble even recording a video. Nonetheless, I did um, take some videos that morning, and I wanted to share with you two of them. The first one's going to be from the, like, the big church, the adult worship, and the second is going to be from the kids' ministry. And so remember, Vista Wesleyan Church in Antipolo, in the Manila District of the Philippines, the Trash Mountain Project, partnering with this church, People that are walking up the hill in their bare feet, up the dirt path, coming into God's presence in his church and worshiping him. I just want to show you what that looked like. Let's take a look at the video of the adult worship. This is a pretty short one. That's the 11 seconds I was able to capture through the emotion, the emotion and the presence of God that morning. And if you were to watch that whole worship set, that whole music set, you would know that, as it tends to be in warmer cultures, it was about 35 minutes long. And throughout the entirety of that time of worship, there were hands raised, people dancing in the aisles. The band never stopped moving. Never, for one second. That was the energy and level of praise and worship of God that morning at Vista Wesleyan Church. And the second video is of the kids' ministry. This is a single-room kids' ministry sort of behind the adult worship center. This is actually chronologically happened before that adult worship space, but this is a video that I took of the kids packed into this room in kids' ministry in the Philippines. Let's take a look at that one. See, we gather in this space, and our kids gather in Northridge Kids on Sunday morning because, because we were supposed to, because we're commanded to in the Bible. 
We shouldn't forsake gathering. You see, but we use our bodies and our voices to sing and praise God because God is incredibly worthy of that praise. We worship God from the truth that his rightful place in our lives and in our hearts is on the throne. It's on the mountaintop. Some of us in a space like this, you might notice, this isn't only a pastor thing, but some of us actually use our bodies and our arms and we raise our hands or we praise God and worship God in some way with our bodies. And I sort of want to unlock that this morning as we prepare to wrap up. I want a little bit of um, unlocking the myth of why, why would we use our hands? Why do people use their hands and their arms in worship? And I think there are four main categories. You might, after I finish this, think, I could think of another one, and you probably can. But I think, for me, there are four main categories of why we raise our hands and our arms in worship. The first one is to receive. This is a simple act of opening up our bodies. See, posture, as we know, this is, this is a closed-off posture, right? This is an open posture, the way we open up our bodies with our hands. You can do this sitting or standing. You can do this with your hands on your lap or your hands on your side or your hands up in the air. All this act is, I think, is an open posture to receive a blessing, a word, or a sense of God's presence with your body. Physically, you can open up your posture to receive. The second category, I think, is to surrender. A lot of times on Sunday morning, you might feel like, I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like God is super great. I don't feel like God is on the throne of my life this morning. You might feel like you don't have anything to give God or anything left. You see, a posture of surrender might look like this. You might open up your body like this to say, God, I am just giving myself up to you. I'm holding the white flag up. I give up. I am surrendering to you and what you want to do in and through me today. You see, a lot of a posture of surrender is the way that our body physically reflects how our heart is feeling. And you might see sometimes in this space, you might see surrender look something like this. If I'm in this posture, I can't possibly do anything forward. I've completely given up. I'm, I'm giving up and I'm saying, God, I'm on my knees. My hands are behind my back. I have nothing to give to you. This is the only way that I have to worship you this morning. I surrender. The third way we worship God is by celebrating. You see, I mentioned a little bit earlier that Minnesota Vikings fan is a role that I play in my life. And so we're in an okay place right now in the history of the Minnesota Vikings. Division champs might be the only year in a row. But anyway, what do we do when our favorite, worship, or our favorite football team, maybe it's the Packers or the Badgers for you or the Bears, what do you do, when, especially when there's like a key play late in the game or when it's a fourth down or when you're behind late in the game? You don't have to even think about what your body does when the fourth down is converted or the touchdown happens. What happens to your hands? They just shoot right up in the air. Like you're saying, yes, this is just a place of yes. Like I am celebrating. My body is reacting physically to celebrate. This is why we put our arms up like this sometimes because what we're saying is I'm just celebrating the fact that I'm in God's presence. My hands are up in the air I'm saying that God is good, God is worthy, he's way better than a touchdown, he's everlasting, he's not going to be something that happens in a moment, but he is everlasting and our body can reflect that. And the fourth and final main section, I think, would be submit or a posture of submission. Our daughter Clara is three years old, so she is growing out of this a little bit, but it wasn't long ago 
that Clara's way of communicating with Leah and I or to be helped in some way before she could use words was simply to do this, right? If you have little kids at home or kids that are grown now, you might remember when they were little, what they would do when they needed you was to simply hold their hands up like this. In some of those moments, Clara was saying, Dad, pick me up. Just, just pick me up. I need you to pick me up. And sometimes it would be after I was gone for uh, a day of work or whatever, and I would come home and her face would light up and her arms would shoot right up in the air because she wanted to be with me. This is what we're doing for God when we're submitting to him in this way. What we're saying is, God, pick me up. Or God, I want to physically be in proximity to you. Or God, I am not feeling like I want to be with you, but I need you to rescue me. I want you to pick me up as my heavenly father and hold me. And here's the thing. We understand that this type of worship with our bodies is incredibly challenging in this space. First of all, it's a gym. Like, I can see the baselines of the basketball court. We know that you're in a gym. And second of all, there's light coming in. We're in the brightest possible space that we could probably gather to worship. If you remember the Yes campaign and the limitations that Pastor Brent shared about why we are seeking after a 24-7 spaces, we think this is a limitation to worshiping God freely and to be able to do the things that we feel like doing when we're worshiping him. But I want to encourage you this morning that this is a really safe place. Nobody is going to judge you here for what you do in a posture of worship. You can practice here for what you're going to do out there. I would just encourage you to give God your worship. If he is in the rightful place at the top of your mountain, if you have a King David kind of mountain, worship him like David did. You don't have to have it all together and you don't have to do it perfectly. And like any other spiritual discipline, it's not something you have to do all at once. I can still remember the first time I ever put an arm up in worship. And it was in a dark room. And I got my hand to about here. And I felt like I really wanted to praise God, but I felt like when I was doing this, everybody's looking at me. That's what I felt like. And you wouldn't be surprised to know when I finally willed my arm all the way up to a posture of praise, that something changed in me in that moment. And so maybe, maybe this is what you have this morning, right? Or maybe this is what you had this morning. Or maybe this is what you have this morning. Worship leader and musical artist Matt Redman, he's a famous one, you might have heard some of his music or some of his work. He says this, Worship is not about us. It's about God. It's not about our feelings. It's about our faith expressed through our actions. If God is on the mountaintop of your life, let your physical life and your physical space and your body reflect that truth. So I'm going to wrap up in a second. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close by singing and praising God together in a beautiful song. I picked this song because I think this is, this is an easy one. It's a simple one. It just talks about how God is so great. I want to encourage you this morning to take a little bit of a chance on God. God is worthy. God is on the throne. He is the king. He is the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He is worthy of our praise. So receive him this morning. Surrender to him this morning. Celebrate him this morning. Or just submit to him this morning. Let's pray. God, we recognize that sometimes it's really, really hard to worship you with our lives and with our bodies. The world is pulling us in a thousand different places. 
and we feel like we can achieve and we can gain trajectory and gain accomplishment by doing things in our own power. But God, as Matt Redman said this morning, God, you are not about our feelings. You are about our worship. You are about the truth that you are good and that you are worthy and that you are at the mountaintop of our life. And Lord, this morning as a church, we commit, Lord, to put you in your rightful place. We commit, Lord, to take a step towards you in worship. We commit to put aside all of the things that we put on our mountaintops, if even just for the next 10 minutes. And we, Lord, just want to be with you. We want to receive you. We want to receive your spirit working in and through this place. We want to submit to you. We want to surrender to you. Lord, we don't, maybe we don't have it this morning. And maybe the best thing we can say is, Lord, I give up. But Lord, we know that you can work in and through that posture as well. And so, Lord, we commit to be a people that if you are on the throne, if you are on the mountaintop of our lives, Lord, we commit to have our life reflect that. We commit to be a people, as King David did, to put you first and to build the rest of our life second. Because we know you could do far more than that mountaintop and with that mountaintop than we could ever do on our own. So Lord, we give you this time. We give you our lives. Help us to be a people that worship you from the place of truth that you alone are worthy of our praise. So Lord, this morning we give you our worship. We pray that you would receive it and that you would have your way in and through us. We love you, God. You are so worthy. And we pray all these things this morning in your son's most powerful name.